What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. Thank you, Jenny and worship team. Aren't all these backpacks, isn't that awesome? I love sitting out there and see all those. Uh, I'm going to be out at Suggs Park on Wednesday night uh, as we hand those out. I hope to see many of you. One of the things I was told on the way in this morning is it's not too late to contribute a backpack. They, they, have, they have more people that they could distribute them to than, than we have backpacks, even though we hit our, our goal of 1,000. So uh, if God moves you to provide a backpack, I uh, want to invite you, get it here before Wednesday, and it'll be distributed as part of what we do. There's still opportunity to participate in that. So um, turn your Bibles to Nehemiah. And if you're a little rusty with that, that's Old Testament, of course. And that's kind of the end of the historical books. So think Kings and Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. If you hit Psalms, you've gone too far. If you've hit the prophets, you've gone way too far. If you're in the New Testament, use the table of contents, I guess. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. Now, while you're turning there to Nehemiah chapter 1, Uh, Every church I've ever been uh, preaching at before, I know there's this kind of phenomenon that when a a preacher closes in prayer while he's praying, you know, a bunch of people sneak out really quick. I don't know if that's to go serve somewhere, I'll assume the best, or whether that's to get a place at a restaurant or whatever it may be to go get your kids. You're not going to want to sneak out today. Uh, We are I've been asked by the elders and the advisory team jointly to present to you what I've presented to them about the process that I bring from interim pastor ministries that, that your leadership is at, has brought me in to lead this church through, particularly over the next year. So I'll give about a five-minute, we'll, we'll close in prayer after the sermon, I'll give about a five-minute presentation. I actually have cut the sermon a little, so you benefit from that to, to try and make this all fit. So please stay and so you can hear that uh, presentation. We are in Nehemiah chapter 1, and I'm going to read uh, all of chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord spoken to us. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Han and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Remember that. That's going to be important. And its gates are destroyed by fire. And here, verse 4. This is our verse for today. As soon as I heard these words... I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
And I said, here's his prayer, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive, let your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants, Lord, and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, even before I jump into this, let let me address what, what I always hear when when we begin a study of a historical book. You know, I know there's some of you who, who probably avidly like history and read history old te- or biblical history or other history. But I know for many people, when you begin something historical, when you begin a historical book study, it's kind of like your eyes glaze over. You know, like that's what you do to get a Bible degree. Why, why are we doing it? How does this speak to our life today? So let me, let me offer to you... Um, Two, two things. They both come from Scripture. They come from the New Testament that, that I think brings pertinence and urgency to studying Old Testament narrative. It, it really underlies why we're even going through at this time in the life of Central Church, why we're going through a historical book like Nehemiah. The first I'd point out to you is uh, the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. Remember, Paul is writing to a church like Central Church. He's writing to believers like like you and like me. And he's referring to Old Testament history. In this case, he's just been talking and teaching about Moses leading the people of Israel through the desert. And he says about all of that history that, that he's speaking about there, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction. They were written down for, some versions say, our warning on whom the end of the age has come. Do you hear what Paul is saying to the the believers in Corinth and to the believers at Central Church? This isn't just history. This isn't just about accumulating your biblical knowledge. These are written to instruct us These are written in some cases, like I think we're going to see today, to even warn us. Secondly, again from the Apostle Paul, he's writing to to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15. He's referring to how Timothy has been brought up, like like many of you, especially those of you who are younger, brought up in in an environment, like you've been brought up in a church environment, where, where he has heard the teaching of the Bible. And in this case, for Timothy, all he's heard is the Old Testament. That's all that existed at this time. 
And he says about Timothy growing up, learning all that, those Bible stories, he says this, from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Do you know what he's saying there? We don't just study biblical history because it increases our knowledge and gives us a big head or it's something we can store in a notebook. We study biblical history because it points us to Christ. We study biblical history because it all either prepares us to hear the gospel or symbolizes the gospel or is the opening unveiling the revelation of the gospel. So even a historical book like Nehemiah, we're going to see as we go through this, there are symbols of the gospel. There are are symbols of what Christ did. There, There are ways in which God moves among his people, the the nation of Israel at that time, that he wants to move among us, as we'll see today. All of this is, is for our instruction, for our warning. All of this points us to the gospel. So with that said, I'm going to launch, especially today, just these first couple minutes into a little bit of historical background. But keep in mind why we're doing this, all right? If you put that chart up there, let me just place Nehemiah for you, because It's one of those historical books. If you haven't looked at it, it's like, where did he appear? and What did he do? All right, think of the first king of Israel. That was King Saul. King Saul was, uh, I think it was 1052 B.C., so a long time ago, over 3,000 years ago. He was the first king of Israel. For almost the next five centuries, the next almost 500 years, there was a continual reign of kings in Israel. You read about them in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. But all that came crashing down. All of that, that, that reign of Israel king, Israelite kings came to an end in 587 B.C. And it should have been no surprise. The prophets, especially Jeremiah, were warning the nation of Israel, you have, you have turned away from God. You are making other things other, your, your sensual pleasures even into your gods, your idols. And he gave them t- chance after chance to turn back. And he warned them, if you don't turn back, I am going to bring a nation against you. He even specifically prophesied through Jeremiah, I'm going to bring the nation of Babylon against you to devastate you. That's what happened in 587 B.C. You can read about it if you want to write this down and look it up later, Jeremiah 39. In Jeremiah 39, it unveils how the Babylonians had laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, and they finally break through the walls, and they enter and fill the city, and they kill the warriors. They burn down all the buildings. They destroy the temple. They knock down all the the huge walls surrounding Jerusalem and they carry off most of its people into captivity, into exile. They take them back to Babylon. They leave just a a skeleton crew of the poorest people there in Jerusalem. That begins 70 years of captivity. You can kind of see that at the beginning on the left side of that chart. Well, God is still sovereign over even disaster like this, and God works sovereignly. And over, over the next 70 years, in 538 B.C., God allows the Persians to overcome the Babylonians. Now, the Israelite people, they're still in captivity. It's just like a change of administration. It doesn't change their life a whole lot. But through the Persians, God works through these kings, these Persian kings who don't even know him, who don't even believe in him, but God sovereignly controls them. 
And he uses them to accomplish his will of beginning to bring back the people who have started to turn their hearts back to God to bring them back to Judah and Jerusalem. And so that's what that chart attempts to show, the three waves in which they came back. First of all, there's, there's Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is, is a, a, a Jewish exile who uh, is sent back in 537, leading a small group of, of exiles. He's sent back by the Persian king to, to be the governor of that province. And, and under the king's authority, and even under the king's funding, he rebuilds the temple. The temple that had been destroyed is now rebuilt in Jerusalem. And we don't hear anything for a few decades. And then in 458 B.C., another Persian king God sovereignly uses to send a second group back. This is led by a priest named Ezra. And Ezra is sent back to restore the Mosaic law, to restore how it is that we worship God. How is it that we live with each other before God? That really wasn't happening at that point. All this is under the sovereign hand of God. And then finally, in 445 B.C., our story starts that we're looking at in Nehemiah when the third wave is sent back, led by Nehemiah, the new governor of the province under the Persian kings. And Nehemiah is sent back with a vision, rebuild the walls, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So all that is background. Let me, let me just unpack the text for a couple minutes, and then we're going to bring it to where this speaks to Central Church today. So if you're looking at your text, verses 1 and 2, just a couple things to to help you get a handle on this. Um, It uses a Jewish calendar. So when did this happen? Well, the month of Chislev. Chislev in the Jewish calendar is the ninth month. It's a winter month. It's kind of our November to December time frame. And it's of the 20th year. The way years were measured by who's, who's in power at this time, a Persian king named Artaxerxes was in power. His reign began in 465 B.C., so this helps us place this historically at 445 B.C., the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. Nehemiah's in Susa. Susa is the winter capital, the winter palace of the king there, and we'll learn next week he, he was a servant of the king. I believe Nehemiah was probably born in captivity. I can't prove that, but there's no indication that he'd ever been in Jerusalem or that he was there when Jerusalem fell. So I think Nehemiah had spent all his life in in captivity there in what what once was Babylon and, and now was Persia. He's there, as we'll learn next week, serving in a very influential position. And some people come back, some people who had gone probably on one of the previous movements back to Jerusalem, and a group of them come back, maybe to visit family, maybe for trade purposes. But among them is somebody who is identified as his brother, Hanani. And Nehemiah meets with these groups, and he says, or we read at the end of verse 2, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the exile. He's asking, What's life like for the people back there in Jerusalem and Judah, these exiles who are no longer in exile? How's it going there, in other words? And what he hears uh, strikes him to the heart. What he hears, Nehemiah is told, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Yeah, I said the temple had been rebuilt by Zerubbabel in the first movement back. 
And if we read through Ezra, in Ezra chapter 4, there's some indication that I think at one point, when Ezra's group, they tried to rebuild the walls. We'll talk about the significance of that in just a moment. And, and it was defeated by the enemies surrounding it, the Samaritans and the others who didn't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. And somehow these enemies, they lobbied politically and got the ear of the Persian king at Ezra's time, and he put a stop to that. And those enemies came, and whatever construction had started, they knocked it all down. So here you have a city with some people living in it and a temple in the middle, but it is totally unprotected. There's no walls. When he heard this report, why, why did he know that the people were in great distress? Jerusalem was, was defenseless. The, the people live in great trouble and shame because they could easily be attacked by their enemies. They could easily be killed. Their temple could easily be destroyed. And verse 4 tells us Nehemiah's reaction. When Nehemiah heard these words about the deplorable condition of Jerusalem, he couldn't put it out of his mind. This news devastated him. Even though I think he'd never been there yet, he hears about the condition of the people and, and, and the city, and it moved him, we read, to weep and mourn for days and to fasting and praying. Weeping and mourning and fasting and praying, th- those are signs of extreme grief in, in the far Near East at that time. Okay, that's a historical background. Let's, why does this matter to us? Here's my question that that I think speaks to where we are today. Let me ask it in Nehemiah's terms, and we'll bring it forward to Central Church's terms. Why did the situation in Jerusalem break Nehemiah's heart and drive him to his knees? I mean, you and I hear about things going on in the world all the time. You know, for how many years now have we heard about just the deplorable condition in Syria? and what people have been living with under that. Think of places in Africa. I mean, you don't have to look far in the world to encounter great suffering. And does it impact us like, like, like we hear this impacting Nehemiah? It doesn't me. I, I mean, I may have some sympathy. I, I may be concerned, but, but not the kind of reaction that, that I see Nehemiah modeling here. And so again, I need to ask the question because I think it speaks to us. Why did this situation in Jerusalem break his heart? Why did it drive him to, as we'll see next week, really four months of fasting and praying? I think we see the answer to it, or at least the indication of the answer to it in verse 9. We see in verse 9 that Nehemiah knows what God has said in his word about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is to be the place that God has chosen to make His name dwell there. Think about, you know, the Old Testament history you may know. David wanted to build a temple, and he made the preparations. Then Solomon built this glorious temple, and what did God do? Because that was according to His instruction, God's presence descended upon that temple. And God made clear at that time that my presence will be manifested through this temple. Yeah, God is not a human like you and I. He doesn't dwell in a temple like we live in a house. But our, our omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God said, for your benefit, humanity, I, I'm going to make my presence known through this building, through this temple. And, and by the way, 
that was not just exclusively for Jewish people. You know, sometimes we can get that, that mistaken belief that, that, you know, Jerusalem and the, the temple, as we read through the, the Old Testament, it really was all about the Jews. But that was never God's intention that it be limited to, you know, some clique of one specific, specific group of people. Psalm 86, all the nations, God, that you have made shall come and worship before you and glorify your name. It's always been God's heart. The promises that he makes over and over in Genesis show that his plan has always been to use Israel to bless all the nations of the earth. And even when we look forward to the end times, when when God brings in his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, we read in Revelation 21 that the new Jerusalem will be filled with people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue, every ethnic group, all surrounding the Lord, the Lamb, all worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. That's always been God's heart. The Jewish people are just where he began to unroll his plan of salvation. So why did the situation in Jerusalem break Nehemiah's heart and drive him to his knees? Because the wall was broken down. Jerusalem couldn't be that city that, that it once had been or at least that God desired it would be, that would be like a a beacon on a hill, that would be an example of not only God's presence in a temple, but a people who who were living for him, a people who were seeking to worship him. With the walls broken down, Jerusalem no different from the world around it. Jerusalem, the people living there, and that current state, that defeated, depressed state, They were no different than the people of the pagan nations around them. When the wall is broken down, the people, they're not only living in insecurity and reproach, there's no distinctive difference between them and the people who live around him. They're not living any differently than the world around them lives. And so God is not being glorified. God's presence is not drawing people to worship him. And here's where I think it speaks to us. This is, this I believe, this truth applies to us as a church. It certainly applies to Central Church, but it applies to any church that claims to be a church of Jesus Christ and to follow Jesus Christ. And and just so you know, I'm not making this up. Look at the images that the New Testament uses of the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes to people like you and me in a church, the church of Corinth, and he says this, do you not know that you are God's temple? The you there, by the way, is second person plural. This isn't an individual thing. This is a collective thing. Do you not know that you collectively, Corinthians, you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Do you not know, central church, collectively, that you are God's temple? And that God's presence, God's Spirit dwells in you? Just as the Jerusalem temple was always intended by God not to be the exclusive place where He dwells, but to be a place that draws the people of the world, unsaved people, to the true worship of God. So churches that worship Jesus Christ, so central church is to be that kind of temple 
that because of the way we live and because of the way we relate with each other and because of the way we worship God and because of the way we serve and because of the way that we minister and even because of the way we work through our conflicts, we draw people to the presence of God. We draw people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians, here's another church that Paul speaks the same truth to. Ephesians chapter 2 Through our union with Christ, he says to the believers in the church in Ephesus, we are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. That's what God is doing here. He's attempting to, to join us together through our individual union with Christ to unite us together as a body, as a building that would be a dwelling place of God. What are the implications of this? To the extent that Central Church, or, or any church for that matter, to the extent that, that Central Church loves the Lord Jesus Christ, seeks to follow Him, seeks to walk in His Word, seeks to deal with their sin and their shortcomings and their, their transgressions in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we are built up more into that dwelling place of God. We become a place where more and more the Spirit of God clearly dwells, and therefore we become more and more of a beacon that draws people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I had an old preacher say, tell me once, or he told me several times, he said, you know, over every church, the Holy Spirit holds up an invisible sign. And he says, over some churches, he he holds a sign, you know, that that people can't see with their eyes, but they, they sense with their hearts. Some, over some churches, he holds a sign that, that says, this is a safe place. This is a good place. Come, come. Over other churches, he says, the Holy Spirit holds up a sign, warning, warning, stay away. We want to be a church that manifests the presence of God where the sign over us says, Safe. This is a safe place. This is a good place. The Lord is worshipped here. You will find hope and healing here. That's the kind of presence that we are to be as a church. Now, I need, I need to say, I, I'm going to state the obvious here. There is no perfect church. You know, if we think about this image of, of the walls of Jerusalem, there's no church that you or I can go to that we won't find cracks in the walls, all right? You know what I mean. I'm not talking literally. I'm talking spiritually. In fact, there's no church that, that I've ever been a part of that I haven't probably been part of uh, responsible at some point in some capacity for widening some of those cracks. So that is a reality. We are, we are sinners in the process of being saved, being sanctified, being made more and more like Christ. And that, that process lasts uh, all, of, all of our lives. But, but here's the, the truth, too. Where the walls in a church have been broken down by division and strife, it grieves the heart of God. Why? Because His glory can't be clearly seen there. And to the extent that has happened at any church you've ever been a part of, to the extent that that has happened at Central Church, it grieves the heart of God where the walls have been broken down. What is Nehemiah's grief, this brokenness that we see? We're going to be looking at this the next couple weeks. What does this grief yield? How does this move him as he's so gripped by the the broken down walls there? 
It moves him to a vision to rebuild, which is the title of our series. We see it stated several places in the first two chapters, but I'll just give you one clear statement of it. In chapter 2, verse 17, when he goes to Jerusalem, he says to the people, come let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. In other words, it's as if Nehemiah is saying, let us work together. Let us do what it takes to restore the distinctiveness of God's people. To, to, to restore the conditions in which God's glory can be manifested and shine brightly to the surrounding world. Let's not live in this rubble anymore, he's saying. He comes with a vision to rebuild. It's not his vision. That vision has come from God. You know, from, from some of my… Uh, I've been meeting with many people, which has just been a joy these, these first couple weeks… I've heard lots of stories of the history of Central Church and, and uh, from all different eras. And, and I've, heard, I've heard especially some people who, who uh, you know, have been here for a couple decades. I, I've heard them look back. I've heard some of you look back at different times in the life of Central Church and talk with, with you know, you start glowing when you talk about what you were seeing some of the ministry initiatives into this community, some of the ways that you were as a church part of racial reconciliation in the Memphis area, some of the ways that you reached out to the homosexual community, some of the ways that you partnered with other churches, the ways that you ministered to some neighborhoods, mixed-race neighborhoods, and brought people in who probably otherwise would never come in the door of a church, some of the ways that some of the people use, there was revival at particular times. Those are times when the light of Central Church shone brightly. When, when the walls, yeah, they still had cracks. Let's not, let's, not be, let's not be deceived in any way. There were still cracks in the walls. There was probably a section of the walls that were, were in disrepair. But, but the walls were standing and standing in a way that, that, that God's presence was seen perhaps more brightly than it is seen now. I'm not, I'm not a Nehemiah. That's, that's not my role. I don't claim to speak as a Nehemiah, but I bring to you the Word of God spoken through Nehemiah. And here it is. Come, let us rebuild. Come, let us rebuild. This church can be rebuilt. And I think you know I don't mean physically. I'm not talking about hammer and nails. I'm talking about spiritually. I'm talking about rebuilding and unity and ministry and mission and outreach. I think Nehemiah is speaking to us. God is speaking to us through Nehemiah. Come, let us rebuild. Now, all of that was my introduction. Don't you hate that when a pastor says that 20 minutes into the sermon? That was my introduction. Well, again, we're cutting it short today. I got one point, and I will pick up on the following points next week. So you won't be here another 20 minutes, all right? For the sake of time, I'm just going to make one point in the few minutes remaining, and then we're going to pray, and then I'm going to show you a little bit about the process that we're going through. To make that point, let me set it up with this question. Where did Nehemiah's vision come from for rebuilding the walls? Because isn't that where we're at as a church? Okay, what does rebuilding look like? What does it look like to spiritually rebuild a church? Where, where does the vision for that 
come from? Here's, here's the question to you and me. Where do we get vision to rebuild the walls of this church, the spiritual walls of this church from? And here's the, the first and only point I'm going to make today, and I'll, we'll get the other points next week. Vision to rebuild, first and foremost, comes out of humility and brokenness before God. It is no accident. It's no coincidence that this is how the book of Nehemiah opens with Nehemiah's heart just being impacted in a way where he's moved to weep and mourn and go into an extended time of fasting and praying. God is breaking Nehemiah's heart. God is humbling Nehemiah's heart so that he can use Nehemiah by spreading his vision and leading the people to rebuild. Vision to rebuild for Central Church comes from humility. It begins, it grows out of humility and brokenness before God. Now, now we'll look more specifically next week at, at, at what that fasting and praying involves, but, but I'm going to give you a preview. We are starting something on Wednesday nights on August 16th, following, following the, the meals that we're going to begin again. We're, we're going to lead, I'm going to lead 100 days of prayer. We're going to pray on Wednesday nights. We're going to have a campaign of prayer for our church. Why? Because it's the thing to do? No, because it's what we see modeled in Scripture. This is where Nehemiah's vision came from. More on that next week. But right now, I want us to see how this man was moved to action from a humbled and broken heart. Notice the humility of his heart. Do you notice what it looks like when he begins to pray? Verses 5 five and 6, they're not on your screen, but here's his prayer. We have sinned against you. First person, plural. I and my father's house, first person, singular and plural, have sinned against you. We, first person plural, have acted corruptly against you. Do you notice there's no second person in there? There's no they have sinned. There's no that person has sinned. Do you notice the humility of heart? Nehemiah, who like I said, I don't think he'd even ever been in, is in Jerusalem yet, he collectively looks at this as this is us. This is us. We, we have sinned collectively by our actions, by our failure to act, by, by our, our omissions, by our commissions. We have all contributed to where Jerusalem is, the condition of Jerusalem. That's what humility of heart will begin to look like here at Central Church. When we get off the second person, plural, the second person, singular, and we become, we speak more and more in the first person. This is the ways that I have contributed to this situation. This is the ways that we collectively have, have allowed our church to, to be at this place where the walls are in the state that they are in. Vision to rebuild, that work that God wants to do in our hearts, vision to rebuild comes from hearts that humbly acknowledge we are all responsible for the broken walls. Finally, vision to rebuild comes from hearts not only that have been humbled, but that are broken, that have been broken. Hearts that have been broken by the things that break the heart of God. I didn't make up that phrase. That comes from a man named Bob Pierce. He is the founder of Samaritan's Purse. You may know Samaritan's Purse is associated with with Franklin Graham and does wonderful things through Operation Christmas Child and many other ministries 
all around the world. That always begun by a man named Bob Pierce, who in the early 1970s was on the, you know, what I would think is equivalent of a missions trip. And he was in this remote rural part of Korea, and he saw these children there all suffering. And he wrote, went home that night, and he wrote in his Bible, God, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. I think that's where Nehemiah was. Nehemiah, who probably, again, had never lived in Jerusalem up to this point. I think Nehemiah allowed his heart to be broken by the things that break the heart of God. It broke God's heart that his glory could no longer be seen in Jerusalem. It broke God's heart that the surrounding nations could not see his glory and come to him. It breaks God's heart to the extent that a church, central church, any church you've ever been a part of, is divided by strife and conflict. And because of the infighting that occurs and all of that, is not a light, is not a safe place, is not a beacon to the community and the nations around. Our vision to rebuild spiritually this church begins as we allow God to humble our hearts, as we allow God to break our hearts with the things that break his heart. Could we make a shift in our thinking about what's going on in this church? Could we turn our focus from how we get so distracted by by personalities, by by things that have happened? Could we turn our focus instead to, to God and what grieves his heart? what the enemy is trying to do among our church, can we let that break our hearts because it breaks God's heart? That's where the vision to rebuild this church begins. Will you pray with me? That's our prayer, Lord God. We, I pray it's the prayer of every, every person in here. We ask you to let our hearts be broken by the things that break your heart. And when we think about um, really that spiritual meaning of, of a church with broken down walls, when we think about a, a, a church that is living in the midst of rubble, um, may we turn our eyes off of ourselves and how that impacts us. May we turn our eyes to you and how that grieves you and how that prevents your glory from shining forth, and how that keeps um, people who need to hear about Jesus being drawn to hear Jesus. And so, God, we, we just want to begin and say, do the work in each of our hearts that needs to happen to humble our hearts, to break our hearts. Touch the hard places, the stony places in our hearts with the finger of your Holy Spirit, make them soft. Do whatever it takes to make them soft, to make our hearts the hearts of flesh, so that our hearts humbled and broken, we may begin to hear your vision for how do you want to rebuild? How do you want to restore your glory in, in a way that is brighter than anything that has ever seen before, been seen before here? We pray this. We, we ask you to work in our hearts in this way, that Jesus would be lifted up and glorified. And we pray in his name, amen.